Welcome to Meet My Inspiration. On this episode, I welcome United Nations Assistant Secretary General, Mr. Satya Tripathi. Mr. Tripathi is also the head of the New York office at the United Nations Environmental Program. Originally from India, he has over 35 years of experience as a lawyer and development economist, and he's been with the UN since 1998. And now, please welcome Mr. Satya Tripathi. Okay, hello, Mr. Tripathi. Thank you very much for joining me for Meet My Inspiration. Thank you so much. Good to uh, be with you and thank you for having me. My pleasure. Uh, could you please briefly describe your current role? Um, currently, I'm the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations. Um, and uh, in that role, I have two hats. The first is that I head the New York Office of UN Environment. Um, and uh, uh, as you know, UN Environment is the Global Environmental Authority and it is the environmental lead within the UN system. Uh, and, uh, and the other hat I wear is that of uh, the secretary of the UN's environment management group, which is a system wide uh, structure put in place by the UN General Assembly roughly 20 years ago. And uh, the EMG um, primarily has a membership of about 50 different uh, UN agencies, funds and programs, pretty much everybody and also external entities as observers like the Worldwide Fund for Nature, the International Union for Conservation of Nature and, and so on. So the role there is to uh, build consensus around key um, issues of strategic importance to the world's environment. So um, at two levels, one is internal as to how we are sustainable, how the UN practices what it preaches uh, because the UN is not small. Um, uh, on any average year, uh, it spends about $30 billion uh, through its uh, agencies, funds, and programs worldwide. Um, so that's not uh, a small amount in terms of a carbon footprint and also what it does internally. So that's the first. Uh, and the second, of course, is externally, what are the key issues and how can agencies collaborate um, and uh, build synergies so that uh, uh, the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And so that's uh, the other role that the EMG plays. And in my view, I mean, I have been the secretary for um, close to two years now. And, and what I have seen is that uh, it performs a very strategic function within the UN system. It brings uh, key concerns to the fore uh, and there's some churning within the uh, UN system. There's a lot of conversations uh, at strategic levels. And then often we find solutions and path forward uh, that is in the interest of, uh, of course, the UN in its role as uh, a service provider, but more importantly, um, to the rest of the world uh, in their efforts to find uh, consensus around uh, key strategic issues for the planet. Okay, very good. Uh, sir, as you mentioned, you've been in your role for about two years now. What are you doing differently in this role than your predecessors might have? Well, my predecessor um, did a fantastic job um, and, um, and he moved on to be the chief economist of the UN. So he's still in the UN system. Um, it's not about uh, doing things differently uh, because uh, I think he did a phenomenal job 
for his time because the context changes by the day, literally, uh, in terms of the issues that confront the UN. Uh, if you take the example of COVID-19, in December, we weren't even talking about it. We didn't know it existed. And in six months time, it has literally appended the world order as we understood it uh, with tremendous ramifications, whether for ecology or environment or ecosystems or, or the planet itself and people and prosperity, no matter what angle you want to analyze the facts from, we have a situation that didn't, simply didn't exist six months ago. Um, and then that's uh, crucial to note that uh, what you do um, is important in the context of where you are um, at a point of time. Let's talk a little bit about your younger years in India. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up um, in multiple cities uh, in India, um, in the state of Odisha. Uh, it's on the east coast uh, of India, a state of about uh, uh, 50 million people. Um, quite, uh, quite a, I mean, it's not a big state by Indian standards, but, uh, but quite a reasonably sized state. And what kind of upbringing would you say that you had? Well, I had a uh, very, uh, I call it a, a very creative upbringing um, because uh, uh, my father was a mathematics professor and, uh, and, and by the time I was born, he had uh, quit that career or was about to quit that career and then set out to be a social worker. Uh, because he believed and so so then he went on to be a journalist and was the publisher of uh, one of the largest newspapers in India, um, something that was founded before, but, but he played a big role in its revival. It was founded by a freedom fighter um, before independence of India. And then, of course, it had, uh, um, with the death of the founder, uh, it had uh, uh, lost its kind of primary driver. Um, and then of course, by the time my father got associated with it, uh, it was uh, being run by a bunch of other freedom fighters, uh, which included uh, then the prime minister of India uh, hmm. in that group. So, um, so he got associated with uh, that group and uh, then uh, went on to become the publisher of the newspaper and uh, and, and, and that newspaper still stands as one of the very few newspapers in India that have uh, a completely independent uh, way of thinking and, uh, and standing up for what is right. Uh, and, and every penny they make goes into charity. Uh, so they don't make any profits for themselves. It's a, it's a charitable trust. So I grew up in a household like that, um, uh, which gave me deep insights into the power of information, of course, uh, what the good it does and the bad it does, and uh, what we see now in terms of fake news and, uh, and the risks it brings to civil society and the soci social construct as we understand it. Um, I understood that uh, 50 years ago. Uh, and and, and that's, that I think is a tremendous privilege to grow up in a household like that where you really understand them. Uh, it was fascinating. 
um, that I got to read the best magazines and newspapers of the world 50 years ago, although they would arrive a month later because they, they, were, they would normally be shipped. And, and, many, and uh, I, I got to read the New York Times 50 years ago, growing up uh, in a small uh, city in India because I was part of a newspaper household where every uh, magazine and the newspaper came into the editorial office, which I had access to, given that my father was uh, a big part of the management structure there. And, uh, and so you get to read everything, which was fascinating. And hmm. so even when India was, had very little connection to the rest of the world, uh, by nature of the fact that it had just been a decade or two since it was independent and it was finding its feet and it was um, uh, still uh, a long way uh, away from where it is now. Uh, and so, but I had the privilege of getting access to the best sources of information the world had to offer. And that was fascinating. The other thing I learned was the power of philanthropy. What uh, um, I'll, I'll share with you a story. I many years later when i was uh, a civil servant uh, in the government um, of india um, i went uh, to meet the judge of a high court uh, because there were a lot of government matters pending in that high court and uh, and of course i wasn't trying to influence the decisions or anything but you can you're allowed to meet um, as a major litigant uh, with no interest in the outcome, but that of justice and fairness, uh, to go and meet judges in camera and request that if certain matters that have been pending for a long time could be expedited. So that was the only reason I was meeting him, is to say that, sir, we have about 200 cases pending in your court and they are of grave importance to the people at large uh, who have an interest in their outcome. So could you kindly expedite their hearings? And, um, and he was very kind and he said, of course, you know, these are important matters and I'll see what we can do. And, uh, and then um, as I was leaving, he said, uh, uh, where are you from? Uh, I, I guess he was trying to be nice. And then I told him where I was from um, and he said, oh, I am also from that state. Uh, and so, so he said, uh, what part of the state did you grow up? And I told him where I came from and all. He said, ah, I know your father. And uh, I said, really? Uh, he said, yeah, I mean, um, the trust that owns the newspaper actually gave me a scholarship that got me to law school. Then I became the judge of uh, this high court, uh, which is a rare privilege. I mean, you know, from millions of lawyers, only hundreds ever make it to the high court uh, uh, bench. And, uh, and I was, uh, that just reinforced my understanding of everything I had perceived as a child but never seen the evidence of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the judge went on to say that, you know, I come from a very poor family in a remote village. And, uh, but I knew that this trust gave out scholarships to uh, meritorious students. And so I made the effort to apply and, uh, and I went on to get the scholarship and, uh, and the rest is history. So, so, so I've seen the power of philanthropy and the power of uh, um, building virtuous partnerships where you can actually leverage not money, but good intent and goodwill to produce um, spectacular outcomes for people and planet. That's wonderful. That's a wonderful insight. 
Um, I'm going to move on now to um, bringing it back to your, your time at the UN or bringing it forward rather to your time at the UN. Um, you're an economist and a lawyer with uh, over 35 years of varied experience. You first came to the UN in 1998. What was your initial role and why did it appeal to you? Well, I initially came in on secondment uh, from my government. Um, so the, the role was that of a regional administrator uh, and, uh, and I was in Bosnia. Uh, but then the secondment ended and, and subsequently um, I went back to the government and then of course I came back later um, on employment with the UN. And, uh, and in that role, I was uh, heading the human rights investigation uh, apparatus for the UN in post-war Bosnia, where uh, so the the office itself had uh, uh, close to um, 600 personnel uh, to start with, and by the time we ended, it had grown to about a thousand personnel, mm. and uh, and it investigated 12,000 human rights violation cases. Um, at, across the country and, and sometimes beyond because many a times the perpetrators could be in neighboring countries um, because when the war was happening, everybody was converging into Bosnia and then of course people had moved back or moved on. So, so finding, I mean, to give you an example, when we started investigating uh, the uh, integrity of the the personnel that uh, were still employed with the government of Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, we started looking at small things like what certificates do you have, you know, because uh, like in every, in, in any normal country, you would check if somebody claims I have a degree, then you would check, can I have a copy of your degree? And then where does it come from and find? And so uh, in many cases, we found that people had certificates but uh, the school board had did not have the records anymore because a lot of things were displaced during the war. But actually somebody in a third country had those records because they had taken them away and they were then verifying and telling, okay, this is a correct certificate, which is as uh, astonishing as it may sound, uh, it was indeed the case. And, and in many cases, we accessed those people and uh, appealed to their good sense and goodwill to return them to the school board so that those uh, records can be reconstructed. Uh, and, and so it was fascinating, but, but so was the fact that there were 12,000 cases that were investigated. And based on those results, uh, we were able to vet all public officials in terms of whether they had anything to do with um, the war and uh, and was that legal and sometimes you may have everything to do with the war but you were just a soldier and you were following orders and you're staying within the ambit of the law uh, whether it is the humanitarian law the geneva conventions uh, or the national laws um, and so long as you re remained within the limits of both your national laws and the international laws pertaining to war and humanitarian issues then you're fine because then you did what you were supposed to do, but, but there were tens of thousands of those that were at the forefront of uh, the genocidal war that affected Bosnia for, uh, for as long as we can remember, and, and the scars unfortunately still remain. 
Indeed they do. Um, so you've been with the UN for quite a number of years and you've worked on many different projects and programs and in many different roles. Um, could you share with us what are some of the programs or projects that you have worked on at the UN that you're most proud of? Maybe something that stands out in your mind the most. Well, I would say all of them because um, um, perhaps uh, the problem, if you see it as a problem that I'm not able to decide which one is the favorite, the problem is with me perhaps because I uh, find uh, it, uh, it fascinating that uh, somebody from a small town in India has the opportunity of leading some of the most uh, uh, consequence, operations of consequence for the world. Um, and I'll explain why. Uh, if you take the case of human rights investigations work in Bosnia, where I started my UN career, um, I, I see that as absolutely significant and central to building peace. Without accepting what went wrong, we will never change. Mm. Uh, there will be a facade of trying to change or attempting to change and, and, and all that, but real change happens when we accept our mistakes and internalize them and find ways to heal. And then that's why uh, reconciliation is so important. And then so to that extent, my own humble contributions and experiences there uh, are absolutely what define me as a UN uh, official or as an international civil servant. Uh, because I saw on the one hand, the horrors of what war can do to a once very prosperous country, uh, deeply rooted in European ethos, um, and just how a few bad leaders can uh, mislead their people into something that uh, the impacts of which nobody has comprehended uh, are understood, and then you are sucked into a mindless war that then defines the life of generations to come. So, so in that, finding those perpetrators of human rights violations, uh, building on that, uh, and uh, structuring systems that will prevent uh, those kind of violations to recur uh, in that uh, operating environment, and, and building not uh, a blame game-based conversation, because that never helps, but rather uh, a self-analysis, you know, uh, uh, to how to change yourself by internalizing your own understanding of what went on, and, uh, and many of the officials that were there subsequently uh, post-war, uh, many of them had a lot to do with it, but most of them had nothing to do with it. So for them to understand what was wrong and what must never happen again, and I think to that extent that was absolutely spectacular. Then another assignment I did was, that I remember was uh, uh, chairing the committees on laws and treaties for the Cyprus unification talks. Uh, as you know, um, that's a problem more than 50 years old. Uh, and when I was involved in it in um, 2003 and 2004, um, uh, it was fascinating because even though there are deeply divided uh, points of view uh, on either side of the island, uh, the Turkish Cypriot side and the Greek Cypriot side, but all, all key issues, what was uh, very endearing to note 
that both sides had the same Cypriot values that they cared for. Uh, so in private, con in public conversations, of course, there's posturing and then um, taking stands that might possibly look intractable. But in private conversations, uh, they all shared the same ethos uh, and same common aspirations for a unified Cyprus. Unfortunately, it didn't come through because it went to referendum and one side voted in favor, the other didn't. But that notwithstanding, uh, I was coordinating uh, the work of about 400 experts uh, in that particular effort from the Greek Cypriot side, from the Turkish Cypriot side, and experts contributed by member states from around the world with a very strict timeline. And then the Secretary General Kofi Annan was very keen on it. And it was called the Annan Plan when it was presented to the people. Um, so that was a very gratifying experience for somebody to be in the center of all that and, and to be able to contribute. Um, I also worked, uh, uh, the, I mean, worked in many places, but uh, uh, the, I was the UN recovery coordinator for uh, the post-tsunami recovery, mm -hmm. uh, where I had the pleasure of working with President Clinton, who was the tsunami envoy of the United Nations. So, um, and then I was the UN recovery coordinator managing the nuts and bolts uh, of a $7.2 billion recovery process. Uh, and the UN operations was rather large with about 3,000 staff, 27 agencies, funds and programs all coming together, um, A, to deliver on a $1.2 billion program just for the UN, but an overall recovery program of $7.2 billion. So the UN had the responsibility of coordinating it at the request of uh, the government of Indonesia and other uh, governments that had an interest in that matter, including donor countries. Um, that was fascinating. And then of course, uh, the um, I was involved in uh, uh, helping set up finance facilities in different parts of the world. And of course, at that time, this all started as a pro bono effort at the end of 2016, when I wasn't working for the UN. Uh, because I was convinced that uh, um, pilots don't fail because you put a lot of money to make pilots work uh, because it's a business model that you're trying to develop. So you put a lot of money into it. So, so I often say that pilots don't fail, but pilots don't scale because you will never have that kind of money at scale to roll it out across the landscape. So you have to find business models where you can have billions of dollars invested in protecting forests, in uh, changing the current destructive form of agriculture, where we keep pouring chemical fertilizers and pesticides into Mother Earth, believing that this is the only way we can grow food. Uh, and, and, and I tell uh, my friends who are on the other side of the aisle that have you ever been to a virgin rainforest? And, and, have, and if you have, did you ever ask yourself the question, has anybody put a pinch of fertilizer or chemical pesticide into those forests? The answer is an emphatic no, but they are still the most vibrant of living and uh, breathing spaces anywhere on the planet. Why? Because nature is cyclical. Nature sustains itself. Um, nature fails when humans happen to nature. And that's what has happened with agriculture. Uh, and of course, then there are perverse systems built um, stacked up one on top of the other. So you, uh, now that the soil has lost its fertility, um, and of course we need keep needing more and more fertilizers and pesticides, then the insects, 
or the pests, they grow tolerant to the pesticides we use, then we keep making them stronger and stronger and stronger. And that then becomes the endocrine disruptors for our children and the chemicals that go into our uh, body systems and give us cancer and incurable diseases. And then that's how you keep selling medicines. So we have, we have built a perverse infrastructure, a vicious cycle as I call it, and, and we need to get out of that. We need to switch from soil chemistry to soil biology, and that's why organic farming, natural farming is so important for reviving the planet. Well, so we're starting to see your passion come through for how, how you feel towards uh, the environment and environmental change. Um, for those that may not know, could you briefly um, describe the UN Environmental Program and its mission? The UN Environment Program was set up in 1972. Uh, it came out of the Stockholm Conference on Sustainable Development. That's where the countries of the world came together and recognized the centrality of environment to everything we do in terms of our growth models and the uh, prosperity paradigms that we build for ourselves. And uh, so it was uh, in 2022, we'll actually be celebrating the 50 years of the founding of the UN Environment Program, but more importantly, the Stockholm Conference on Sustainable Development, which uh, then was followed up 20 years later in the Rio Conference, as we know, uh, uh, the famous Rio Conference where the Rio Conventions were born, uh, the first being the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, then the UN Convention on Biodiversity, and the UN Convention uh, Against Desertification, the UNCCD. So these were the three Rio Conventions, as is most popularly known. And then there was a Rio Plus 20 conference in 2012, uh, where um, there were some changes to the world's environmental governance model, uh, where countries of the world came together to agree on a UN Environment Assembly, which is a universal body. Every country is represented there. And, uh, and everything is decided there by consensus. It meets once every two years. The next UN Environment Assembly meeting is on the 21st of February, um, 2021 uh, in Nairobi. And, and, and of course, 1972 was 1945 when the UN was founded. And there were many more countries in the world in different continents that were capable of being a, a, a generous host to UN agencies. And um, Kenya, of course, put itself forward and the member states agreed to headquarter UNEP in Nairobi. Um, so that's how UNEP headquarters is in Nairobi, although I am based here uh, because the Secretary General is here and the UN headquarters is here. And uh, UNEP felt the need for senior representation at UN headquarters, but our headquarters the, of, of the organization is based out of Nairobi. Okay. Um, what do you think are the most urgent challenges regarding the environment and climate today? I think uh, urgent is a misleading term, uh, not in terms of uh, seriousness, because it is urgent. Uh, mm -hmm. That's not the point I'm making. Uh, the point I'm making is that for some reasons, uh, we believe change is good. And, and we know change is good. And um, we, we keep telling ourselves that change is the only constant we have in life. Uh, and as paradoxical as it sounds, it's a fact. Uh, so when we coined the term, and when, when I say we, I'm referring to the world community, climate change, it somehow does not convey the seriousness of what is really happening. It should perhaps be called climate crisis. 
a climate breakdown or climate catastrophe. Uh, let me explain why. What is happening now is air pollution kills about 7 million people worldwide every year. Uh, and these are research data, not speculated information. Um, and uh, uh, if you look at uh, uh, the IPCC reports, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, they tell us that, uh, uh, they told us actually that a two degree pathway will be something that humans can possibly stay within and still be able to bounce back uh, over the course of a few decades. So if we remain on a trajectory of two degrees of global warming by the turn of the century, then we would be fine. But that was based on the information which was available then. Uh, mm. But now, uh, the year before, IPCC came out with another report, which basically told us that uh, we need to stay at 1.5 degrees Celsius. Two degrees doesn't work because the positive feedback loops are reinforcing. And what I mean by positive feedback loops is that uh, if you take the case of the Arctic ice or the Antarctic ice sheets, which pretty much uh, uh, have the potential, even small portions of them have the potential of rising sea levels by 50 feet, uh, which basically means every bit of land that we use to sustain ourselves, our living spaces, our cities, our agricultural land will all vanish with 50 feet of sea level rise. Um, and, 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 and that is the challenge actually, because we somehow do not seem to understand the enormity of what is happening. If you look at the two degree pathway, scientists tell us that the carbon budget for the world to shoot through that possibility is 2,900 gigatons. And we've already spent 2,600. At this time, we're spending anywhere between 40 to 45 gigatons a year, which basically means we have roughly seven years, by which time it will be impossible to ever stay on a two degree trajectory. Then we are done with two degrees. Paris Agreement that everybody appreciates so much, everybody talks about it, and, and rightly so, because it is the first time all the countries of the world came together to agree on something. So that, that's why it is significant. But the fact remains that the Paris Agreement, if fully implemented, of which there is little evidence at this time, barring a few countries, it will take us to 3.2 degrees of global warming, not two degrees or not 1.5 degrees. So in summary, the Paris Agreement doesn't take us anywhere, even if it is fully implemented. And that is why we're at a point of crisis. And what I would urge your viewers to think what it does to everything they love, because love is a very powerful metaphor for everything we do in life, whether we love ourselves or our children or our parents or our ecosystems or our environment, love is at the center of it all. And if you love anything, you should be very worried because we have roughly seven to 10 years time to really turn the clock back. And that is not as simple as turning the clock back. It's, I'm using it as a metaphor. And this is turning the planetary clock back, which will take every person on the planet to put their own little bit. And that will add up to spectacular results. Are you optimistic that this, can, this goal can be achieved? I'm very optimistic. We ended up in the moon. 
before they started working on it nobody ever believed indeed and uh, so the humans is nothing beyond the humans good and bad and then that is why let's dig deep find our inner belief our inner core of morals and values and ethics and let's pull all of that together uh, let me cite a small example of my own self which i find fascinating so um uh, indulge me uh, for 30 seconds the when i was a little kid and i was growing up and i started shaving um my on the first day um, i had the tap running and and i started shaving and and of course my mother watched me um and at that time i was amused she was watching me but now i understood she must be watching me with horror at the uh, criminal wastes i was indulging in in terms of the tap running and and me standing there trying to shave so she didn't say anything she watched me do that the next day she came in and she gave me something in the family now is more popularly known as a bucket test so she brought in uh, three big buckets of 20 liters each and uh, she let me shave as i was and then as i was uh, shaving she would catch the water that was flowing out of the tap and at the end of it she had already collected 60 liters of water and some more uh, that had been wasted and then day 3 she brings me a little mug of water about half a liter water and she said uh, let me show you how to shave uh, and and my initial reaction was how would you know have you ever shaved and she laughed and she said no i haven't but i know how it is done and uh, so she was very indulgent in that sense without getting angry at a very stupid remark uh, she she took that on and she explained to me how it is done and i found it um that it is possible to shave with half a liter of water without the tap running and all and the other day i was uh, talking to uh, my daughter and uh, and and she was asking what is it that you are most proud of um from your life experiences and i told her this mm. um that uh, she's very good at maths and she did a quick calculation she says that it's been more than 40 years since then i said yes it is and she said that means you've saved more than a million liters of water by not uh, i she said by not and i added i said being stupid uh, and um, i'm sure she was saying by not being wasteful or something but i added i said no by not being stupid and so a single human action and that's not all of me all the resources i use that's just the shaving mm. so we have within our powers to change things climate change has happened yes there are a certain set of countries where uh, perhaps there is more resource use than is sustainable and we can have that debate uh, um, um, because a lot of countries engage in that debate us versus them and perhaps that is fair from their context but what is significant to note that every person on the planet can actually contribute to changing behavior to questioning themselves and finding meaningful solutions of which there are plenty and and actually that will add up to climate action that will actually save us from extinction in a few decades so so um sir you often say that if the un can make itself redundant then it has done its job how do you keep yourself and your team focused on this idea well i say that uh, with a lot of um, responsibility um, and and let me explain why 
the UN was created by the member states in the wake of the Second World War, um, and, uh, and and of course in the wake of the First World War, the League of Nations, which then collapsed, and then of course the UN uh, came into being in 1945. And uh, and the, the rationale was that there was a lot of need for the world for having a common voice on a whole variety of issues. Um, and world peace, of course, was on the foremost on the top of everybody's mind, but then there was health, nutrition, education, uh, and, 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 and the UN has done uh, tremendously well. This is the 75th year of the UN. We're, we're calling it UN 75. Uh, and so I often wonder what can the UN do meaningful in the next 25, 50, 75 years. And actually it comes at a right time for that kind of contemplation to occur in our own minds, whether it's in mine as an international uh, civil servant or in anybody that is a stakeholder in what the UN does. Um, and actually we are at a time, of course we don't have a war, but we have something, COVID-19, which is, uh, the impact is much worse than any war that we can think of in recent memory. We have close to a half a million people that have perished already across the planet. We are close to 10 million people being infected um, across the planet. Uh, and, uh, and, and just the US uh, Center for Disease Control, CDC, just came out with its own study that they believe that uh, the number is anywhere between six to 24 times actually of those that have been uh, tested and found COVID positive, uh, which is a very scary situation that then you are talking about roughly um, anywhere between nine to uh, 30 million people. Um, and then that's what it is. And economically what it had done to the planet uh, is nothing any war had done in recent memory. So, so it comes at a time when um, we really need to stop, step back and think um, that uh, uh, the whole development paradigm and what can we do differently this time? Because the next 25 years will be the most defining for all species, thanks to our actions, but most importantly, the human species. And uh, how we behave in the next 10 years will de decide how the next generations uh, will um, uh, live their lives. And so we, uh, any recovery plan, any socioeconomic recovery framework that we put in place as uh, communities, as municipalities, as cantons, as counties, as states, as countries, must be anchored in sustainability because we have a tremendous opportunity to change course. And we will not get another opportunity like this before it all goes south. So I think that's what we should keep in mind in this 75th year of the UN. Well said. Um, I'm curious, uh, when your time at the UN comes to a close at some point, what do you hope that your legacy will be from your time at the UN? Well, I'm too small to leave a legacy behind because uh, the UN is a collective leadership of, uh, uh, of certainly um, tens of people like myself um, who are uh, uh, providing leadership uh, uh, at different levels in different organizations. Uh, 
Um, and then so um, in something like the UN, which is the world's uh, collective voice on a whole variety of issues that uh, is defining both in terms of scope and substance, uh, the legacy of any one person uh, uh, must be seen from the perspective of what was the collective vision? And did you co contribute effectively to the furtherance of that collective vision? So that's one part. The other is, did you bring anything new to that collective vision? Did you question the status quo? Uh, and did you uh, excite and energize um, those that are the young people that are coming into the UN uh, to believe in themselves, to be able to speak up freely uh, and independently their thoughts, um, because that will make the UN a better place. It is the younger voices, it is the new leaders of tomorrow that are coming in today. And, and how do uh, older people like myself who are at the apex of the pyramid, uh, excite them, energize them, empower them uh, to be the best they can be. And then I think that's, um, if, you, if you can be a part of that kind of a legacy, then I think you've served your part well. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, Mr. Chapati, I think this would be a good place to bring this talk to a close. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story and your passion and your time with me on this episode of Meet My Inspiration. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Chris. It's my pleasure. been a pleasure. Thank you. I want to thank Mr. Chapati for taking the time to share his story and his thoughts with us. He clearly cares very deeply about what he does. I was so impressed by his passion for his work and by his humble nature. If you want to find out more about the United Nations Environmental Program and all that they are doing around the world, please visit unenvironment.org. The UNEP's website has a wealth of information, including updates on the UNEP's 17 Sustainable Development Goals and the UNEP's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Again, to learn more, please visit unenvironment.org. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Meet My Inspiration, and I hope we've been able to inspire you too, even if just a little. Sometimes that's all it takes to make great things happen.